Um, today marks a new chapter for Grace Church, and therefore we thought it was appropriate to start a new sermon series. And we've decided to work through the Ten Commandments in ten weeks, God willing. But maybe some people here are thinking, why on earth would you do that? Why teach through the Ten Commandments in this day and age? Is it a tactical error? I wonder what your impression of the Ten Commandments is. A lot of people don't know them. Very few people can name many of them, even Christians. The American TV uh, talk show host, Jay Leno, did an on-the-street interview with some people. He approached two girls of, of university age and asked them to name any one of the Ten Commandments. And they replied, freedom of speech. (laughs) Even fewer people understand how they work. In 2011, the Wall Street Journal published a piece by Ricky Gervais called An Atheist Easter Message. Gervais confidently claimed that he had kept all the Ten Commandments all his life. Now, I don't know Ricky Gervais personally, but I do know this. Such a claim reveals total misunderstanding of how these commandments work. But what about you? What is your impression of the Ten Commandments? Is it like this? That's Charlton Heston. It's kind of scary, weird, remote, bearded, you know, judgment of God coming down the mountain. Maybe so. In our culture, the idea of a commandment is probably perceived as negative most of the time. Surely, anything that places limits on you, anything that is a law handed down from above, must by its nature be negative. A shackle to bind us. Crushing. Life-denying. And that's how we tend to think. But just listen to these voices from the Bible. This is from, uh, this, these are from the Psalms. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I think about it all day long. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Now, how many modern people, even modern Christians, actually think like this? God's law is so great. It's like, honey, give me more. It's actually, in fact, it's missing from a lot of our faith. What would happen if modern Christians took this aspect of the Bible's teaching seriously? Here's a suggestion for a rebranding. Now, here's our new logo. But how about this? Law Church, Manchester. You know what? I think it would be original. So where do you go to church? Law Church. Just imagine it. Wow, Law Church. I've never heard of that one. Yeah. It's great. We love God's law. But you know what? No one would do this. No one would have the nerve. We love the idea of grace. We sing, grace, 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 paid for my sins. We love the idea of hope, life. We love the city. We love Christ. 
So we come up with names like Grace Church, Hope Church, Life Church, City Church. Good name. But Law Church? Forget it! It's unthinkable! Yet still there are those voices from the Bible. Oh, how I love your law. I think about it all day long. Psalm 1 says that the righteous man, the the one who lives the good life, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, how how can they think this? Is this just some kind of weird Old Testament thing? No, it's not. Here's Jesus. He says of the law of God, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that's why I'm doing this series. I want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Teaching these commandments and hopefully doing them as well. Jesus says, John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, there's the case. Now, why would anyone love the Ten Commandments that Tolly just read for us? Why would anyone love them, honestly? I think the answer to that is found in three movements. There's a movement from slavery to freedom. From slavery to freedom. Then there's a movement from Pharaoh to Yahweh. Then there's a movement from self to Jesus. And that's what I want to think about with you for the next wee while. From slavery to freedom. Now these commandments don't appear in a vacuum. There is a relationship context. It's a bit like a wedding. Last week, my wife and I went to a wedding. We always love the the part where people exchange vows. And it reminds us of our own uh, wedding day some 14 years ago. And, but, you know, when you hear it, the wedding vows are pretty intense. All that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. I promise to be husband and wife from this time forth, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To have and to hold. Now, those vows are pretty intense, aren't they? Pretty solemn. But if you are already in a relationship with someone who you love and want to give your life to and spend your life with, then they are actually the most natural thing in the world. Now, the background of Israel's relationship to God at the moment the Ten Commandments are given is a history of slavery and slavery that's coming to freedom. The Israelite nation, as they were originally the family, the descendants of Abraham, went to Egypt as an extended family group. There were about 70 members of the household. They went there to escape famine. Now, one of the family members, Joseph, was already living there. He was an immigrant, but he had an amazing big job in the government. So he secured a good treatment for the family. And they settled in a really nice part of the land. And they lived there, and they multiplied and built houses and had families. And they grew and grew and grew for 400 years. And during that time, when they were growing in numbers, they they sort of became part of the community. Although ethnically, they were distinct. And they were known as the Hebrews, or the people of Israel. But then a new king came to power. And these kings in this country were called Pharaoh. And this king did not remember Joseph and the ancient relationship that they had with the people. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 1, if you want to follow along. It's there uh, a few pages back from where we were reading. In the hardbacks, Exodus chapter 1 is page 54. 
Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We read of a slave master beating a Hebrew slave, a violent beating, and he was free to do so, and there's no recourse to a court of law. Now, not only did the Egyptians oppress the Hebrews, they also initiated a a policy of population control, but it was very brutally carried out. The government told certain midwives to attend every birth, and if the baby was a girl, she was allowed to live. But if the baby was a boy, they were to kill him on the spot. Infanticide. Girls could live because they're easier to control and they could serve as slave girls, but they started to cull the boys. They wanted to break this people. Now, can you imagine living in a situation where one ethnic group has had that much power over another one and they use their power in that way? Forced labour, violent abuse, racial discrimination, infanticide. Of course you can. If you know anything about history, this was not the last time that chattel slavery existed. These Hebrew slaves were treated worse than animals. Their dignity was stripped away. They were crushed. And they were so useful to their masters as a pool of free labour that the Egyptians were determined not to let them go. That's slavery. Now... Let me ask a stupid question. What is so bad about slavery? I told you it was stupid, but stay with me for a minute. What is the real horror of slavery? I want to suggest the real horror of slavery is found in three things. George Orwell uh, wrote a very powerful novel in in the uh, middle of the last century, 1984. A number of other studies of totalitarian government. And I think they pick up on three aspects of slavery that are the sort of unit dynamic of it. I'm not sure where I am on these slides, by the way. Oh, it's not going to come up, sorry. Loss of control. Loss of control, crushing and confinement. Loss of control. Now imagine getting beaten up. It happens. It's bad enough. But what about getting beaten up where there's no recourse to justice, whatever? A free man can take a beating. But if you take away his freedom... You've robbed him of something precious, infinitely precious. Slavery is an experience of being out of control of your own life. You're enslaved. Someone or something else has a grip on you. Secondly, crushing. This aspect of slavery is not that it's just bad treatment, but it's dehumanizing. It takes away freedom and dignity. It diminishes the person. You cannot flourish. It attacks your humanity. Thirdly, confinement. It's one thing to be enslaved for a period of time. There have been times in world history where people could sell themselves into slavery for a while to pay off a debt. But what if you could never get out? 
What if the loss of control and the crushing were permanent? That would be awful beyond description. You could never get out. You couldn't see a way out. You're trapped. You lose all hope. All the light goes out of your eyes. The children of Israel were slaves. They had this bitter experience, the loss of control, crushing confinement. And even when God raised up a leader for them, Moses, one of their own people, the Pharaoh refused to let them go. God gave warning. He gave notice. He sent plagues, one after another, on Egypt. But Pharaoh would not relax his iron grip. They were well and truly enslaved. And then they were set free. God sent one final plague, the most awful one of all, the death of the firstborn in every household. And the people of Israel were spared, not because they were good, but because of the blood of a lamb. Every family took a lamb and killed it and and spread its blood on the lintel and the doorposts of their house. And death passed over them. And because the lamb had died in their place. But death visited the houses of Egypt. And there was wailing all over. Finally they were set free. And as they left the country, in a hurry, the Egyptians ran out of their homes. And they thrust precious possessions onto them. They gave them gold and silver and jewellery and luxury goods. It's kind of back payment for all those years of hard service. And a large number of people saw how great God was. And they came out with them as well. They're called the mixed multitude. They were free. Thank God Almighty, free at last. And they were on the road to their own country. They were going home. What a road trip that must have been to the promised land. Feeling the wind blow through your hair and knowing you never had to go back to mixing bricks without straw and toiling again. Or if you did, it would be to build your own house. Freedom. Now with that background in mind, let me ask you a question just to bring you back in if you're zoning. When were they given the Ten Commandments? When were they given the Ten Commandments? Anyone going to answer? Yeah? You've given a more complex answer than I was looking for. But basically, they were given the Ten Commandments after they'd been set free. God rescued them, brought them out, brought them through the wilderness, and brought them to a mountain. And then he gives them the commandments after God had rescued them. Now, why is that significant? They were not given the Ten Commandments in Egypt as a kind of ticket out of slavery. If you keep these, I'll rescue you. If you blow it, forget it. The deal's off. That would have been legalism. They were freed first. Tolu read it for us, Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. That's an image of a bird teaching its young how to fly and how to leave the nest. The power of the eagle is combined with the tender love of a mother bird. She will not drop the fledgling, but will carry it till it learns to fly. In other words, God's relationship with these people was one of grace right from the start. They were not specially deserving, as if they were nicer than other people groups, or morally better. In fact, Old Testament history shows they could be just as cruel and wicked as anyone else. They did not earn God's rescue. They were not lovers of God. 
In fact, they were deeply involved in the sort of twisted religions of the Egyptians. And they quickly defaulted to making a calf out of gold and worshipping it and saying, this is what brought us out. They did not deserve or earn God's favour. It was freely given. It was grace. So, what is the point of the Ten Commandments? This is how you stay free. This is how you stay free. This is how to live a free life. This is how to live with dignity, the good life, the life we were made for. Exodus 19 continues, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant with you, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God had brought them out to a special relationship with himself. He'd set them free. And now he's going to show them how to stay free, how to live as free people, God's people. And that is one very good reason for us to study these Ten Commandments. Because we want to live free too. We want that life. But a bit more about that later. Before we go on to that, we need to look at the nature of this freedom that they've been given. Because the second movement, first of all, the first movement is slavery to freedom. The second movement is from Pharaoh to Yahweh. Now Pharaoh, as I've already mentioned, is the title of the Egyptian king. But who is this Yahweh and where did he come from? Have a look with me at Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if you've got your hardback Bibles, it's page 73. Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. And look at this interesting thing. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When God speaks, and God literally spoke to them these words, what does he say? How does he identify himself? He says, I am the Lord. And you notice that it's printed in our Bibles with, with capitals, small capitals. This word here, Lord, is actually a name. The Hebrew word underneath it is pronounced something like Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It means, I am who I am. God speaks to them, he says, I am I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, all the other gods of the Egyptians and the rest of the ancient world were the God of A, B or C. They were the God of something or other. They were the God of some realm or they had some sphere of dominion. So there was Ra, what a great name, Ra, <laughs> the God of the sun. Then there was Heket, the frog goddess. A fertility god, because frogs can be pretty fertile. There were bull gods, one of which was called Apis, who was a kind of intermediary between humans and the big gods. These are all the god of something. And all the gods of the ancient world were like that, except one, this god, the god of Israel. He's not limited in any way. He's not identified with any one thing. He just is. He introduces himself as, I am. That's my name. The God who is, don't need any further qualification. Now what does that mean about all the other gods? That means they are the ones who isn't. So with this one name, he sweeps away all the competition. And the plagues on the Egyptians were not random. What should we do today? I don't know, frogs? 
They're a demonstration that the true God, Yahweh, blows away all the pretenders to the throne. You think there's a frog goddess? Okay then, here's a plague of frogs. How do you like them now? So God introduces himself and he identifies himself with this special name, Yahweh. And it was held in such high regard by the Jewish people that the later rabbis would never even speak it. Still to this day, you get a recording of a rabbi reading out the Hebrew Bible. And when they come to this word, they substitute another word that means Lord. They won't say it. In fact, for many centuries, people thought it was pronounced Jehovah. So you find that in old Bibles and in old hymns. Jehovah. But recent scholars think it's probably closer to Yahweh. Should we say it? I think so. It was given to us. A precious name that reminds us of the awesome God who has rescued us and he is unique. I am who I am. Now there's a move here from a a pagan oppressive king, Pharaoh, to a great divine king, Yahweh, but there's something else going on under the surface. It's not obvious in our Bibles. And it's about the nature of the relationship that they are now in. It's about the nature of the relationship. It's about the nature of the kind of freedom. Over the last century or more, there's been massive advances in our understanding of the ancient Near East. Huge archaeological finds have uncovered documents and statues and buildings. Learned loads about the culture and the language of these nations. And one of the most exciting things, and I do think it is exciting, to have been discovered, is the ancient Treaty Covenant. I know you're excited. Really exciting was the discovery of dozens of late Hittite treaty covenants. Does it get any better? Now, I know that the words Hittite treaty covenant and exciting may not have formed a natural pair in your mind this morning, but I want to try and persuade you that this is worth getting excited about because what archaeologists have discovered is that there's a legal form for treaties between nations, between a great king who conquers another nation and brings them into his empire. This treaty form has six parts. There's a preamble in which the person giving the treaty identifies who he is and who the recipients are. Then there's a prologue in which he reminds them of their relationship to him. He reminds them that he's the great king and what he's done for them. Then he gives various obligations, things they've got to do. Then there's normally a list of witnesses to the covenant and in the ancient world these were different gods. Then there's a document clause. They made sure it was written down on stone or something durable, two copies, so that it can be stored and re-read and re-learned. And finally, there are sanctions. If you break the covenant, there will be curses. If you keep it, there will be goodies or blessings. So a covenant in the ancient world is a legally binding treaty relationship. And scholars have found that the first five books of the Bible reflect this same structure to a remarkable degree. We've got it right here in in the Ten Commandments. Look with me again, Exodus 20. The preamble, verse 2. I am Yahweh, your God. He's identifying who he is. Your God. Prologue, a reminder of the relationship. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Stipulations. Well, there are all these commandments that are given, instructions on how to live. Obligations for the people. Now, when we come to the list of witnesses, we've got a problem because 
there's only one God. So he's not going to call on the other gods to be the witness. So who is he going to call on? Well, he doesn't need to. If he's making the treaty, it's a done deal. As for the document clause, well, it's there. If you look at um, Exodus 24, verse 4, over the page. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. They write it down in a a lasting form. And then there are sanctions. Blessings if you keep the covenant. Curses if you break it. Exodus 20 again, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord... Your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. More and more. Now, so far, I can think some of you are thinking, all right, this is maybe got into the category of interesting, but it hasn't quite got too exciting yet. Here's the cash value. By structuring the relationship along these lines, God is showing the people how to relate to him. He's doing it in terms that they can understand from their own world but he's also transforming those terms. Remember, they lived in Egypt for 400 years. They know all about these international treaties. They know all about the great king, how he relates to the people. They know it's a solemn, binding legal arrangement. It's a form they can understand. What's going on here? God is showing the people how to relate to him, and he's doing it in terms they can understand. They are to relate to him as the great king. And we are his people. That's what's going on in the Ten Commandments. God has brought them out from one king to another king himself. He's brought them from slavery to freedom. And this freedom isn't the absence of all sorts of boundaries, some sort of vague, hippie-ish freedom. In the Bible, you serve the thing that you worship, and you become like it. So if you worship money... You will serve it. You will give your time and energy to making money. It governs your thoughts and your actions and your decisions. And then it shapes your character. You become shaped by money. If you worship achievement and success, you will serve it. Achievement will govern your thoughts, your ambitions, your choices. You come alive if you achieve something. You just die if you fail. Your God is achievement and it shapes your character. You see, we may think that we're free... But in fact, we're all serving something. We're all worshippers. Very often we don't realise what we're really serving. And the Ten Commandments are part of a relationship with a great king. They are saying this. The great king has rescued you. You owe him your life. You used to serve Pharaoh and look how that worked out. Your life was bitter and harsh. Now you belong to Yahweh. He has set you free. So if you want to live free, serve the great king. And this is how to live. What this means for us, if we're Christians, is that to be a Christian is to relate to God as the great king. On his terms, not on mine. And his terms are set because he's the creator God. So his law will always be for my good. Because he's my maker. So keeping his law, his commandments, will be the best thing for my flourishing. It will be following the manufacturer's instructions. You see a fish swimming in the water, see how it glides and swims? See that same fish out on the riverbank choking and flipping? See a bird in the air, how it soars? See that same bird crashing into the water, thrashing and drowning? You see a yacht with the sails up and the wind behind it, how it sails? 
See that same yacht with no wind run aground, how it lists and limps. Human beings need to know what environment we can live in to flourish. What are the natural laws? What are we made for? What is the way to swim, to soar, to glide? And the Ten Commandments give a foundation for life that is in line with the Creator's instructions. He is the great King. This will be the way to live. Finally, the third movement is from self to Jesus. Because this third movement comes to us. Although we spent a lot of our time today in the, in the year 1400 BC, we're not really interested in just history lessons. The Ten Commandments are not just part of the past, they are alive. They're part of the living word of God. They're spoken for us, meant for us now. Remember what Jesus said. Don't take away from those commandments. So how do our lives connect with the experience of this ancient people, Israel? Let me suggest it is in this experience of slavery. Now I know, I suspect, that no one here has been a literal slave. At least I think so. But remember, what I suggested was the essence of slavery, the loss of control. Something else controlling you. The crushing, reducing you. The the confinement, you can't get out of it. I think we have experienced that. We've experienced the loss of control. Something else controls us and I can't shake it off. If it is money, then you are happy when your bank balance goes up and you are worried and anxious when your bank balance is zero or in the red. It's controlling you and you can't shake it off. If you are controlled by your achievements, you are never free. Some of you here know that you're a perfectionist, don't you? You know, perfectionists are very rarely happy. The only way to life is the death of perfectionism. You just can't be perfect. You're so hung up on achievement and success and the significance that it offers you. Or for somebody else, it's a relationship. If only I had this kind of relationship with someone of the opposite sex, then I would be complete. If you make that your God, then it will never satisfy. It cannot. We've got too many gods. Now, they're not frogs, bulls, or the sun, but they are still created things. And whereas we were made for one God, the creator. And our gods confine us, and they crush us. Relationships, money, achievement, can never bear the full weight of our humanity, nor can success. We were made for something bigger. We were made for something really significant. What is great enough to satisfy the human soul? Only a relationship with the maker, with Yahweh, the one who is. And how can you and I obtain such freedom? Only by the blood of a lamb. The only way the Israelites were rescued from Egypt was by the death of a lamb. It had to take their place. Its blood was smeared on their doorposts and lintel, and death passed over them. And the same thing obtains for Christian people here and now in this year. The only way to freedom is through the blood of a lamb. Not the little sheep that you can buy down at the supermarket in Russia, but the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ whose blood was shed on the cross on our behalf. 
And through his blood, we can be set free from all the things that bound us. And through the Ten Commandments, we will learn how to live free lives. So stay with us, please, on this journey. And we'll hear from God's word. Let's pray together. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Sovereign Lord, we acknowledge now in our in the quietness of our own hearts, that we have had other gods, far too many of them, that we've worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, that we've taken good things that you gave us and we've abused them and made them rule over us and sought after them and thirsted for them and then at the end of it we were just disgusted and empty and still thirsty. We forsook the source of life and we went after false things. Have mercy on us. Forgive our sins, which are many. But we thank you today that we can approach you in confidence because of the blood of a lamb, the perfect lamb, the spotless son of God, Jesus Christ, your son, our saviour. And we pray, send your Holy Spirit to us Send him now. Convict us. Show us the nature of our hearts. Show us our need for Christ and bring him to us. Make him real to us, we pray. For your glory and for our great good. For we ask it in his name. Amen.